Hello, everyone. Welcome to the heartbeat of the dance floor. Today, I have a very special guest. Robbie Leslie has been performing on the international circuit for over 40 years. One of the last of the first generation of DJs, he began his nightlife career on Fire Island in 1975 and hasn't stopped spinning yet. He brings a wonderful perspective to our podcast because in one way or another, he's been a part of every decade of dance music since. These days, you can hear Robbie coast to coast in North America on his weekly Sirius XM Studio 54 broadcasts of Robbie Leslie Presents and on Andy Cohen's Kiki Lounge, Channel 312. It brings me great pleasure to have as my guest, the legend, the iconic disco master mixer himself, my dear, dear friend and brother from another mother, Mr. Robbie Leslie. Robbie, welcome to the heartbeat of the dance floor. Thank you, Marsha. How are you? Thanks for visiting me here at home. I'm delighted to have you here. Uh, gosh, you know, it's kind of like old home week. We sort of began our careers at about the same time and about the same place. And we've seen each other grow and change over the years. This is going to be this is going to be fun. Um, first, for anyone out there in our audience who doesn't know Robbie Leslie, I'm going to ask you to give us just a little bit of of a background, just a quick jump start from then to now, and then we can dive into exactly what you feel heartbeats are and how it applies to the context that I'm trying to, you know, describe in this in this podcast. Very good. Very good. Well, I think you could call me a club kid before there was such a term. Uh, when I first started going to bars, there were, of course, uh, jukeboxes. And I was absolutely fascinated with the music that we're playing. And it was that danceable R&B of the early 70s that, uh, that became disco uh, over time and became refined and, and then fragmented and went in several different directions. But uh, I just couldn't get enough of it. I'd be going out to clubs, you know, five, six nights a week. And, uh, and then, of course, uh, you know, the club scene became more specialized. And by then... Uh, I was working as a waiter and I got hired to work on Fire Island as a waiter in a club, in a, rather a restaurant that turned into a club uh, after hours. So, I mean, how lucky was I to, uh, to start working at one of the, I'd call it ground zero for disco as far as uh, testing out new music and uh, having the best DJs, you know, playing there uh, out on Fire Island, being so close to New York City. And that's where I got my real serious start. Uh, was being hired to work at Sandpiper, and that was 1975. So uh, from there, you know, it's all about choices and all about opportunities and where you where you go from point to point uh, in your career and in just your life trajectory. So this was um, this was an amazing place to to sort of as a springboard to start. And from there, of course, uh, New York City came next uh, with a few stop offs here and there. And um, I guess you could say the rest is history. Most people know my pedigree, which is Studio 54 and 12 West and the Palladium and the Red Parrot and scads of other places. But just wonderful, you know, wonderful experiences. And each new job, each new gig led to something better. And uh, along the way, the music distinctly changed over time. And then, of course, into the 80s. And then in the 90s and then crossing over into the new millennium, uh, every every decade was distinctly different. So uh, I've been following it. I've been a part of it. 
And uh, it still brings me great joy and satisfaction to be included in, you know, in the nightlife scene. And uh, now, of course, I'm virtual in that I'm on, uh, you know, satellite radio. So I'm not physically in a club necessarily, but still being heard. So it's a wonderful, a wonderful life I've had. But you still just pop up here and there on special events and parties and guest appearances. So it may not be a club residency as we knew them back in the 80s. Right. Uh, back in the day. I don't do do clubs even do residencies anymore like they did back then. I, I Oh, absolutely. Yes, definitely. Yeah. There aren't the big super clubs that we remember that uh, we celebrate uh, from those days. But uh, yes, every city has nightlife and has uh, dance palaces of some sort. Um, and I do work uh, a lot, mostly like special events now, and they're not regular residencies, but that's uh, that's kind of more like what's going on these days, big parties, uh, as opposed to, you know, everyone going out three or four nights a week to, to dance. Now it's more of a special occasion when they go out. Yes. And as you know, I'm not as active in the nightlife world professionally as I once was having my lighting career take me on a little bit of a left-hand turn into the architectural world, but that's neither here nor there to this, to this point, this point being that I didn't know if, if, you know, not doing the nightlife world, if there really were, you know, those followings of, as we did on a Tuesday night, you would go to this club to hear so-and-so. And on a Thursday night, you would go to that club to hear so-and-so or another club to hear another type of music, another musical genre. There were so many different things prevalent back then. Um, I don't frequent the club scenes. Yes, I do go occasionally out. I'm not a complete wallflower or shut in these days. Um, but I don't know if they have those kinds of, uh, what I will jump to as what I'm calling a heartbeat, which is something that can come from a variety of places. It can come from the music. It can come from the interaction of the artistic and creative team. It can come from the venue itself, <clears throat> or uh, it can come from the people. Um, hence, people who would maybe follow a certain type of music or a certain DJ. And and in in kind of segueing to what you've noticed and or describe as heartbeats that perhaps you have created. I mean, we know your functionality. It's to create the musical journey that we go to the event to hear or to work collaboratively with other DJs. If it's a multiple DJ event to hear and, and the other aspects of what you feel may compromise that epitome of my definition of magic, which is when all of those events culminate and come together and maybe how that's happened in one decade versus another decade might be an interesting, uh, you know, perspective. And I'm going to go back to some of our photo aids as mm -hmm. we talk through the years mm -hmm. and show our YouTube audience a little bit of what we've got going here. Um, I'll replay again, as you were mentioning, the Sandpiper. This is out on Fire Island. Hence the right. trees and the outdoorsy. Yes. And it yes. was just a wonderful place. Uh, it was a great place. And it now where it stands, where it stood is now a club called the Pavilion. So the, uh, the yes. footprint is still there and it still is a nightclub. Yes, indeed. Indeed. Um, the, 
uh, next club in the city that you were alluding to, and I don't know if this is your first in the city, but certainly has been a love. Uh, what a what a wonderful, wonderful establishment. Please tell us a little bit about what made what you think made Twelve West so special. Oh, very happily. First of all, let me let me preface the whole thing by saying, yeah, anyone uh, who asks me what was my favorite club, no no doubt about it. Very quickly, it was Twelve West. And, really. Uh, Absolutely. No question. Uh, in spite of, you know, all these uh, mega places that opened subsequent to 12 West, there was a purity uh, about the club and uh, all the factors fit together like a puzzle and every all the pieces came together so perfectly. The crowd uh, was really into the music. I mean, they were distinctly focused on a night of dancing. It wasn't about, you know, socializing necessarily or or, you know, hooking up with a stranger, going out, taking them home. Uh, the prime driver was dancing all night and hearing a great, you know, trip of music. Uh, also, the location was good. It was down in the West Village, very easy to get to and uh, relatively safe. And um, uh, additionally, the sound system, which was by Graybar, oh. uh, truly was magnificent. It was, uh, it was a very true sound. You could dance all night long and you could leave and your hearing really wouldn't be, uh, you wouldn't have any, you know, ringing or throbbing in your ears or headache or what have you, or, or, or you know, sound loss. Uh, it was just that kind of a pure system. So everything came together. Um, I loved working there uh, and I learned a ton um, because it was my first big New York City gig and it was a residency. I was there until the Saint opened, but uh I might be getting a little ahead of myself, but uh, the Saint, of course, closed 12 West and also closed uh, Flamingo, which were the two major uh, all-night private clubs that were operating at that time. And and you, in your description of 12 West and just what a special place that holds and the reasons why are so multifactual, that's exactly what I'm talking about when I talk about a heartbeat and what makes up a heartbeat. It's not just one thing. There's different levels. There's different, different, uh, I get, yeah. Levels of, of, of this, this perfection, if you will. Um, 12 mm -hmm. West was one of those places that always is very dear to my heart. And it was always a place where I knew without fail, I could go to be lifted. I could be put in a beautiful space. There were never any bad nights there. Even if there were bad drugs, there were never any bad nights at 12 West. You were surrounded yeah. by uh, an amazing family. Um, mm -hmm. It was a very, very special, very special place. Um, and one of the great things about uh, that club and all the other clubs that I subsequently worked at that I just want to drop in here is that um, not only was I a DJ there, but every one of them, I would go out there dancing Uh typically before I started working there, because after that I became too well known and people wouldn't let me alone. So I couldn't dance and just get lost in the music because everyone wanted to ask me questions or, or be close to me or, you know, do whatever fans do. But uh, uh, being there as a, as a dancer uh, was absolutely unforgettable. And uh, hearing other DJs play, play that room that I eventually would, take over and this applies to the studio and uh, the same as well. Um, I think you have a greater appreciation of being a DJ at any given venue. Uh, if you were on the dance floor uh, first and got to really 
feel and learn and uh, and get the total total atmosphere of the place under your skin. I would absolutely agree with that, and I would say that the same thing holds for lighting people. Yeah. And one yeah. of the things that I will never forget, Mr. Mark Ackerman, a mentor of mine, and God rest his soul, one of the finest lighting people I've ever known to date. He uh, he said. You really know the lights are good when you can see them with your eyes closed. Oh, yes, yes. And that's only something you can do from the dance floor. And right, for you sure. know all of the technical aspects of it, but you've never been on the dance floor experiencing it. You're right. There's something missing in your trying to recreate that experience for others. Um, yes. You really I, have to know it from both sides. Yes, yes. Yeah. In, indeed, indeed. Um Great point. Great point, Robbie. You. Um, you meant you brushed on 54 and I know you yes. did have a time when you worked multiple clubs in Manhattan. The eighties were very prolific and yes. we've got a lovely picture of you here in the DJ booth at 54 on the far right, right is the DJ. You can see the record coming out of his right hand right. and on the left is all the lighting control systems. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and that's a very good example of just how small that booth was. And you'll see all these pictures on the internet about, uh, you know, the DJ booth at studio, you know, crammed with celebrities. And believe me, uh, it was a nightmare. It was just totally unpleasant for the DJ because you had to like, you know, uh, move your way around them to get to your records or. Oh my gosh. It was so and not only that. I remember when the confetti cannons would go off. Yes, yes. If Roy was not ready for it, he would. For we, we'd be in the booth, and you'd have to grab albums and like fan them away and keep them off the turntables. That's right, and you'd hold your hands like above the the turntable, the needle, <laughs> to, the, uh, to keep everything from you know dropping on the tone arm. Yeah. Yes, you know, no moment. Never a dull moment is right. And those Thorin's turntables in the old days, those original ones, Roy used to carry extra rubber bands in his bag right. because they would always snap. And that's what held the suspension in right. the turntable so that if someone did kick the booth, it didn't jostle the needle. They were literally suspended on multiple rubber bands. That's right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, all the little things, you know, that we inside the booth remember that, you know, are so are so funny because they're, you know, back then it was pretty basic stuff. I mean, nothing was automated, you know, especially with the light board. Uh, you know, it was very analog, you know. Everything, the sound, your sound was analog as well. Everything. Right. It was you know, just, there, you know, there was no automation and any and any effects that you created, you created Correct. by hand on at that moment. It wasn't yeah. like you ran around with all of these these devices that were in studios studios oh, sure. use them all the time while making recordings, but they were not available like they are today in our digital world. Correct. Correct. Oh, you can do almost anything in the booth now. Yeah. You can. Although we were both very privileged to work at a club that did push the bar of design in, I think it opened in 81, the red parrot and the red parrot had the yeah. first computerized lighting system. Right. By Kliegel Brothers. And if you look back at this picture and you see the word <laughs> Kliegel on the oh, left. Yeah. Right. Uh, same people. They yeah. they created the first computerized lighting playback system uh, that was digital. And it was used on Broadway. And our lighting designer from the Red Parrot was mm -hmm. Ken Billington, who was a Broadway lighting designer. And he implemented that technology. 
And because the Red Parrot was also a soundstage and we had live acts and they had an in-house swing band orchestra, it was a proper musical soundstage as opposed to having to build a, bring in staging and microphones and equipment for a band that most venues had to do. This was built right. in. We had two sound yeah. engineers that were part of our running crew at night just for the live shows. So it was a very, very sophisticated discotheque, if you will, especially back in the day. Um, considering 81, I mean, there, there was nothing digital other than that computer, to my knowledge. And fiber optics, as I recall, as well. Fiber, op well, fiber optics aren't digital, but yes, that was a cutting edge technology. And again, something yeah. that was more... You know, uh, yeah, it, it was a very cutting edge. We had a lot of incredible, wonderful technology, and it was a good marriage of proper theater yes. and discotheque nightclub. Disco dancing. And may I add that that was one of the first uh, residencies that I had where we got to work together every week. And so even though our yes. our uh, careers have been paralleling and, and cr crisscrossing for many years prior, this was like the first time where dependably we were together every single week. Uh, yeah, for a few now. years, yes. And and it was wonderful. And we, we, you know, and the Red Parrot was an offshoot of Jimmy Mary, who was going to be the subject of one of my future podcasts. Bobby Grecky has agreed to, uh, to be my guest. And he's worked with Jimmy since the late 60s or early 70s. Right. Um, this is our crew. We were all family. And I'll go from left hiding behind the floral arrangement, seated as Michael Fairman, another DJ. Standing behind him is Michael Hart, one of the managers from the Red Parrot, to his right, oh, that's Jimmy. Me. That's me behind him. Oh, my goodness gracious, you're right. That is you. Yep. My dear, look at you and Michael. You look so similar in that photo. <laughs> well, that's Robbie, and this photo was taken in their garden at their apartment on the Upper West Side as they hosted a lovely dinner party for us. Right. So I'm seated on the other side of the floral arrangement and behind me in the striped shirt is Jimmy Pisano, one of the managers. To uh, to my left is Michael Hart in the blue shirt, who is another one of the managers, and Bobby Grecky in the striped polo is uh, the other manager. And sadly, the only one of the three managers who is still with us today. So we're yeah. very grateful to have him come on board and and get down this history of Jimmy Murray, who in and of himself changed in many ways the New York nightlife scene from the 70s. Yeah. Um, and one more fun. I'm looking forward to that. One more fun pick before we go away. Robbie and I did a New Year's Eve together. Oh, yes. And right. this was there for our wonderful New Year's Eve. We both That's at the Red Parrot. Yes. decided to dress it up indeed. Right. And back then the Red Parrot had a lady who used to go around very 40 style with a cigarette tray mm -hmm. and sell cigarettes, which of course was legal to smoke in New York then. <laughs> and then there was a photographer who took photographs of people with her Polaroid. Right. And that was her concession. Yeah. And it was, it was kind of a throwback, you know, to the forties nightclubs, if you will. The swing uh, band. In, in so, many yeah, ways. Yes, sure. indeed. Indeed. That was fun. That was, uh, it was wonderful working there. It really was. It was great. It really was. And then we have worked together sporadically at many other venues um, over the years, that was the only residency, and it was just—it was wonderful. It was uh, it was a great family. It was a great place to work. It was, but you're forgetting that other big club we worked at together. Uh, we worked at many other big clubs. <laughs> but shall I move on to this big club? 
Yes, that's the one. <laughs> that was the biggest of the big, I think. The yes. Palladium. We did mention briefly the Pavilion, and we worked there together as well. Correct. Um, but yeah. the Palladium was the biggest of the big. And, um, and it was amazing. If you look at that picture that's uh, up on screen right now, uh, and you look halfway up uh, behind, sort of behind the television monitors on the left side, that whole second story, the second floor was lighting and sound and videos. Uh, it was enormously sophisticated. It was very spacious, very comfortable, a great place to work. It had a Richard Long sound system. Marsha can tell you about the lighting, but it was state of the art. It was fantastic. It was very state of the art. The lighting offered Verilites, which to that point had only been used on rock and roll tours. They were only rent used as rentals. You could not purchase the lights. We had a 25-year lease on the fixtures. There were 72, I believe, when the club opened. And um, it was the only in permanent installation of these lights anywhere in the world at that moment. Um, the lights were invented a few years earlier, created for a Genesis show that began wow. in Barcelona, I think in wow. 81 or 82. And that's when these three guys in Texas were tasked mm -hmm. to create a really cool effect for the Genesis show. And they put some moving scroller technology together with some robotic technology together with some uh, uh, wheels and widgets and gidgets and came up with this first robotic lighting fixture. Yes. Well, they did a very good job. <laughs> we and the company <laughs> and, and this, this lighting fixture really turned everyone on its ear from a lighting perspective, because you can't look anywhere on any show these days that doesn't have a moving head fixture that is a color changing fixture that's all in one. Prior to that, I'll go back to the Palladium picture for a second. And you can see on the very top above the Keith Herring, a row of dots. And those were traditional lights. Up to that point, you had a light, you put a color in it, and that was it. Bada bing, bada bang. It didn't change. You wanted four colors, you needed four lights. Right. If you want to change the color, you had to do it when the club was closed. And lower the lights and change the gel on it. And there yes, you go. And if you wanted red, green, purple, and blue, you needed to have four lights. Right. And if you wanted more than four lights in your show, you needed to take however many lights it caused you to create. Maybe it took you 20 lights to make this in yeah. one color. So you now needed 80 lights to do four colors. So right. on and on. Anyway, yes, this yeah, was yeah. really the one club that I think defined us going from the analog to the digital world. Mm -hmm. yes. I really do believe this is the club that was that that line of demarcation. Yes, I agree with you. Even though it was open, opened in the 80s, uh, it really was something for the new millennium as far as uh, as far as groundbreaking and just just a, a new generation. Indeed, and they could see what was possible. And even though, as you say, it didn't come about until years later to be commonplace. Yes, they definitely could see what was possible. And I think that, uh, you know, kudos to anyone who pushes the envelope, who does something that no one's thought of being able to do before and does it successfully. You know, kudos to them. That's how we get great art. That's how we make progress in, in our world, yeah. in humanity and scientifically. Pushing the envelope, uh, just trying new things, experimenting. Yeah, they're the pioneers. They're the ones that, that bring us forward. Indeed. Indeed. Mm -hmm. But all good things do need to ultimately come to a close. And during that time, you mentioned very briefly the Saint. We spoke about the Saint as a mega club. Certainly uh, it has it has so many. In fact, 
Peter Sparr, who was one of the engineers of the sound, the perfect sound system at 12 West, was the sound designer and engineer at the Saint. Correct. Um, there were there were so many incredible aspects that made that club a phenomena, um, yeah. and and in and of itself, I'm sure also had it, it. You know, it had many heartbeats, and they changed over the years. They changed yeah. from yes. the first year. <clears throat> I don't believe, well, I'll let you tell the story. I believe you started second season. Uh, no, I started the first year. I played Christmas. Uh, in ah, TV dances, yes. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that was uh, pretty much the same time that I left 12 West because uh, business dropped off so precipitously. Uh, they could only keep one DJ as a resident. So they kept uh, Jimmy Evangelista because he had seniority. But by letting me go, they actually did me a great service by opening up my availability, and uh, I was hired at the same. And uh, it was, um, well, just to say that it was mind-blowing is an, an understatement. Uh, it was basically one man's dream uh, made real. And uh, anything you can think of, it was made, you know, into 3D reality. Uh Everything, the light show, the uh, the star machine, of course, the planetarium dome, the size of the place, uh, just the the policies that they adhered to as far as uh, uh, how late they would stay open and uh, no cameras and uh, you know so many so many little things, the details that made it the special place it was. And um, of course, as you said, all things do come to an end. Unfortunately, the health crisis in New York and around the world. Uh, pretty much decimated the, the private membership of the, of the club to the point where uh, the writing was on the wall and the owner, Bruce Mailman, decided, you know, instead of letting this dwindle to nothing, uh, to go out with a bang. And that was and, in uh, and spring of and, and I'm just going to throw in there also in a couple of years prior to the St. Closing, and we're talking about the building <clears throat> that, was, that was the club at the location of, uh, of Fillmore East, 105 Second Avenue yes. in Manhattan. Yes. Um, that also began, um, they, they began having outside events in order to try to keep the space open, which I think ultimately led to Bruce's decision rather than have it have a slow death. They would bring in promoters. They did, I know Steve Gold did a few nights. Mm -hmm. He was also our manager at the Palladium at the time. Right. So I think that in no small way that led to Bruce's decision to dignify what we had at the Saint. It was so special. And I was yeah, a nice choice of word. Yeah. And and I think he chose to dignify it with a graceful closing mm -hmm. and then move on to the next venture, which was him doing the Saint at large parties that occurred. It, it, I it, That's another topic. I believe that in no small way kicked off a lot of the circuit party uh, events and things that really began to rise in the nineties all over the country yes. and yes. all over the world ultimately. But let's backtrack a minute to what was the year of the last party? Was it 88? 1988, April 30th to May 1st, I guess something like that. A three day party that. Yeah. yeah. Ten, ten, DJs, uh, 10 of the most prominent and popular DJs still living uh, played uh, in four-hour blocks, and there, what you're seeing now is the closing night poster. Uh, the Saint sent instead of invitations, they would send posters for all their major parties, 
And the artwork was just amazing. Uh, they would hire, well, they had Rob, Robert Maplethorpe uh, do a couple posters and uh, uh, Rex did uh, a couple posters as well. Um, but it's all just incredibly creative stuff that they would, they would put out. So this was the closing night poster. The list at the bottom were the DJs, the entertainment and the lighting, you know, people who stood at equal, equal footing and equal respect, uh, especially in that club uh, where the light, the lighting tech was uh, just as respected and, and appreciated uh, for their job uh, at the end of the night as the DJs were. I think that it was one of the few places that elevated the lighting person to having its own platform. And in my humble opinion, the reason of that was the first year they offered the classical hour. Yes. And during the classical hour, it wasn't that the DJ didn't play music. The DJ did play music, mm -hmm. but the lighting person was the focal point because people would literally come to lie down on the floor and look up at the dome as though they were in a night sky mm -hmm. and watch the, the choreography of the lighting as it went to the classical music. Um, and it was, I think one of the first times that the lighting person was really elevated to the level of being an artist, the light show wasn't the gimmickry. It wasn't the pageantry. It wasn't the drops going in and out at 54 and, or at the palladium that had the execution and choreography of the night. It was the artistry of the moment and what the lighting person did to accompany the music. Right. And uh, let me just add there that it wasn't just the first year. In fact, I played, uh, I did classical hour until I left the Saint at the end of 86. And in fact, I closed the Saint uh, in uh, 88 uh, with an hour of classical music at the very end, since I was the last DJ to play there. So, uh, so yes, that was a very important part. And all of you guys, Mark Ackerman, yourself, uh, Richard Erskine, Richard Tucker, uh, Jim Hicks, and I, I apologize for those that I've not named, Tony Lumen and Tony DeBizia. Mm -hmm. uh, and they, in their own rights, were all talented. And it was great fun to see how they would, uh, how they would interpret and light some of these wonderful uh, orchestral pieces of music. Yeah, it's you know it's a different uh, it's it's a it's a different form of lighting and the sound yeah. system at the Saint was also very classically tuned. There was a sweet oh, spot yeah. that was perfection, better and, than a concert hall, better than Carnegie Hall. It opinion. was, and <laughs> and for a few years there, I worked with with uh, with Peter Spar mm -hmm. and EnterTech, and and we used to go in and tech the sound system. And, and also in doing installations that were new installations, I was always amazed at Peter's ear because there's a tool that's used when you're establishing um, the parameters of a sound system and tuning it up, if you will. Yes. Um, and, and it's a thing to call white noise. Yes, right, correct. And it's calculation and it's done with the machine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and Peter would always tune the room to his ear mm -hmm. and he would check it with the white noise meter to see if he needed to make any adjustments. And more times than not, he didn't. He was as good as the damn meter. Right. You know, that was the strangest thing. I mean, it was ear splitting because I was there for several tests, not only there, but at the Sandpiper and a couple other venues. And it was like, it sounded like static to my ears. And it was just like, what is he doing? And yet he could hear something that I couldn't. And that yes. was his genius. 
he yeah. had amazing he had an amazing sense of hearing he, he really he really did um you know look it was it was a cast of characters that were each in and of their own right amazing you know charles terrell the set designer from la mama theater a broadway background mark ackerman who was one of the most incredible lighting people ever had also a natural gift some could think that colorblindness is a handicap if you're a lighting person <laughs> in mark's case mark, mark was colorblind mark was colorblind or rather i'll say color sensitive to blues oh. and oh. what that allowed was that he saw intensities of light better right. than anyone else oh. it was this this filter oh. that god had given him to measure wow. intensity. People walk around with foot candle meters to meter the light, to look at it, to make sure that everything is even. You know, uh, it's, a, it's a tool like a white noise meter. So where Peter had the white noise meter in his ears, Mark had a foot candle meter in his eyes. It was really quite fascinating. Quite I didn't amazing. know that. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Wow. Yeah. And a little trivia for, for those of you who like that type of thing. Uh, one of Mark's favorite colors was Congo blue. And that, that is a beautiful, deep blue that almost borders on ultraviolet. It's a lovely color. And he used to use that prominently uh, in some of his lighting setups at the same. Actually, that was both of our favorite colors. Uh, there you go. <laughs> Mark guided me. And I don't think if he had given, if he had not given me the go ahead when I was asked to do the lighting design at the Pines Pavilion, when it was, when the first permanent installation was put in when the first system was put in i don't think i would have done it he uh he was a great friend he was a great mentor he was a great artist and and a, and really a great a great supporter of me in my early career he clearly i was grateful and blessed that he saw something in me um yeah. that that i was able to share with him years later after he had moved to boston i'll i'll throw this personal thing in and then i'll move back to topic um, but shortly, I would say maybe a year or two before we lost Mark, um, God rest his soul. He had come to New York and it and we all hung out and visited like the old days. Um, and it was after I had just done lights at radio city music hall for Misha Paris, who was the opening act for Ashford and Simpson. And it was so wonderful after a lapse of, you know, maybe 10 years after we first met to say, Hey, this is what your guidance led me to at this point. And it was just such a, it was just so wonderful to be able to share that with him uh, in one of the last times that we were together. So that is a wonderful thing and a wonderful memory. Yeah. And yeah. I was there, I was there for that show. Yeah, indeed. Yes, you were. Yes, you were. Um, okay. So I'm going to get back to heartbeats and I'm going to ask if you have any little stories or snippets or memories um, as we've gone through the decades, I mean, pull them from anywhere you choose, but I know you've had so many wonderful, wonderful experiences, both in this country, various cities, internationally, over the decades. In your mind, as you think of what makes a heartbeat, is there examples or stories from various parties or, or experiences that you'd like to share uh, with us? I would love to. Um, first of all, uh, I've done a lot of thinking about before this interview about what I consider to be the heartbeat of the dance floor. And since uh, you and I shared in, in naming, you know, coining the name, uh, it's very dear to me. Uh, so I think about the human body. And of course, the heartbeat is the heart. Uh, 
and it is a muscle and it's right in the middle of the body. And um, so what do I see? How do I see a dance floor, you know, like transposed to a human body? And as I see it, the heartbeat is specifically, it's the energy generated by the people dancing on the floor. Now, let's take that a bit further. You can have uh, a human has a brain and they have limbs and they have, uh, you know, they have uh, their immune system and, and all these other specific uh, organs and, and systems. Uh, the brain I see as like your sound system, your lighting design. And uh, let's say the uh, something else could be the design of the space or or the concept of a particular event that's a one a one off event. But uh, nothing functions without people dancing and having a great time on the dance floor. Uh, everything else is, uh, is secondary. So as I see it, um, the heartbeat of the dance floor is generated by the crowd that comes. If the crowd doesn't come, you can have the most spectacular venue, the most the magnificent party, and um, you have a, a corpse. You have a, a non-functioning human or body. Um, so as I see it, the heartbeat of the dance floor is that energy created by people coming together to dance and celebrate. And it could be 10 people. It could be 10,000 people. But it's got to be cohesive. It's got to be of one mind. And that's what makes nights unforgettable, especially from the DJ booth for the lighting and, and sound you know, people. Uh, so that's my take on what the heartbeat of the dance floor really is, at least to me. Uh, and it's that wonderful, it's that wonderful energy uh, generated on the floor when everything is working as one, almost one organism. And it's a remarkable thing to be up in the booth above everybody looking down upon it. It's, uh, it's so supernatural, I guess is a good way to describe it. Uh, and those things have happened at, happy to say at all the places I've worked at the sandpiper when I was cutting my teeth and learning and making mistakes, but at the same time was being encouraged and the crowd coming together and being so supportive. And uh, one little thing I remember is after a particularly good night, I used to go always go to the beach during the day because the club was closed and working there at night, I had the days off uh, and coming down to the beach and like everybody around like started clapping and I mean, I was, it came so unexpectedly and it just completely blew me away. But it was that kind of, uh, you know, like a community feeling that they were genuinely proud of what I'd done the night before. Uh, jumping up to 12 West, if I had not landed that job and met Tony Martino and Alan Harris, uh, I think my whole future would have been different because they taught me so much about. Uh, the reality of, of playing a big room and playing to very, very large crowds, uh, they taught me to be humble and to be grounded and not to take myself too seriously. Uh, and also the people dancing um, there at 12 West when you did a fine job or even a fine mix or a fine blend or just a great choice of songs, uh, their response was so immediate and so enthusiastic that uh, uh, those little little moments are, are locked into my brain and my memory. Uh, Studio 54, of course, was the Glamorpus job, and uh, I was very happy to have it. I didn't enjoy it while it was happening, to be perfectly honest. Uh, I found it uh, very stressful. Uh, and again, as I said, uh, the DJ booth was like a train station with people coming and going, and uh, it was exceedingly loud up there in the booth. Yes. But, uh, you know, we rallied, and uh, 
made some incredible nights and it was a great view the dj booth was probably the best view in the house really was and uh i loved dancing there as much as i loved spinning there and it was a terrific place uh of course working with you marsha at the red parrot and palladium was golden uh you know because those places were so state-of-the-art for their period uh they were just you know just magical places and magical you know every which way you look at it and we have personal memories that just are so intimate and so so unforgettable it's um, true we we had fun also and i think fun. that absolutely in many ways i mean i've done lights for a lot of people and when you're doing it with someone who you know so well or someone whose music you know so well that just puts another level of a nuance into yeah. it and it makes it easy to read someone else you you can oh, yeah anticipate what the move is because even with just a look or a twitch or a wink i would know what your next move was it was this oh, yeah. spoken communication that you know you had with special friends so that's yeah, a that's dynamic yeah that's a dynamic we definitely had because we we had such a history together and you know we were kindred spirits like you said uh, uh brother and sister from a different mothers <laughs> <laughs> so you know that says it all Indeed, <laughs> well, we knew each other intimately. We really did. We still do. You know, we can second guess each other. So working together in tandem like that was was so was so fine and so wonderful. It was, and we met long before I even thought about doing lighting. And we met when I first began in my music career. So by the time I started punching buttons and lights, you know, we already had a well established friendship going on. So, correct, correct. You know, and yeah. that's a great way to start. Yeah, having a little foundation there. Oh, yeah. yeah. Although I must say, um, sharing much of the nightclub history and with various clubs and owners and, and each club did represent a certain family in a way. And if you were part of yeah. what made that venue tick, if you will, mm -hmm. you were part of a family. You were part of a very special family. Absolutely. It, it was the only one you were part of, but you were certainly part of a very special family. That's right. And that, that was the management the the lighting the, the tech people you know the the resident djs that were you know there were at least because these places were many times seven night operations so you'd have a, a good number of djs and lighting people uh oh yeah on staff. so yes it was like a clan or a family or, or a tribe each each different uh different venue Indeed. And sometimes the same venue would host different events. I mean, at both the Red Parrot and the Palladium, we had famously Thursday nights were Latin nights for many, many years. Right. And, and that, that a whole different know, thing. Yeah, sure. Whole, whole different, whole different kettle of fish, if you will. Right. And, and wonderful. Right. Oh, my gosh. Or I have, kettle of, kettle of uh, well, I'm trying to. Kettle of mangoes. <laughs> there you go. There, you, you, you do anticipate me. See that? <laughs> I I have such wonderful memories uh, from working with so many fantastic Latin artists over the years through both of those clubs. Yeah, and yeah. Yeah. you know, as as you, we we both been privileged to have our work take us down some incredible roads. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, your road has moved more from live performance, which I think you do more as a special item, into yeah, yes. your now. A uh, very prolific, serious career, which please tell us it's expanded recently into the uh, into uh, uh, Andy Cohen's shows as well. Sure. Well, let me jump back a little bit and say, first of all, uh, because of the pandemic, um, I was very fortunate because my um, 
my revenue stream was not interrupted. Now, uh, the Brooklyn Museum uh, mounted an amazing exhibition that you were part of, Marsha. And uh, we I was together hooked. on the soundtrack. Exactly. That's correct. But I was going to play the opening party. And that was the very first of quite a few, uh, you know, bookings that completely evaporated at the beginning. Exactly. In fact, I was in New York for a preview opening of mm -hmm. the Brooklyn Museum exhibit on the 11th of March. Mm -hmm. And on the 12th, the city shut down and the exhibit did not open until the September, I believe, of 2020. Yeah. Um, at, at, and Rob, I was also asked to provide uh, the ambient music soundtrack, which Robbie collaborated with me and the museum on. And in the three rooms of the exhibit uh, are special mixes that were compiled by Robbie. And they are on tour with the exhibit now, which is in Dortmund, Germany. Oh, it is. So, oh, I, so, I hope that somehow, some way, someplace, sometime, I'll get to see the... Uh, I am yeah. hoping that if it does not get back to New York, at least it goes to a city like Los Angeles or right. maybe even Florida. I mean, we do have decent museums in Florida these days. So sure. I'm hoping it will travel. Believe me, I will tell yeah. you when it's around, the best that we've had are... Neither of us have really... I, I, saw, I saw the exhibit at the preview, the VIP party, right. and ran through it, but I wouldn't say that I saw the exhibit in its entirety. And it and it is wonderful. And that was the beginning of the lockdown, the 12th, 13th of March. And right. the opening party, you were supposed to come up and do that like, you know, days later, practically. That's correct. That Friday. Yeah. So um, and getting back to the, uh, yes, my, my serious uh, engagement and, you know, my job with them uh, was every Friday and continues to be. And uh, I'll be celebrating 10 years coming up uh in 2022 in the, in the spring of 2022 so it's been it's been quite a long time and i've never i've never had a residency a dj residency that lasted 10 years it's <laughs> really rare and uh, this is a screenshot we've got up of robbie's byline on sirius as it as right. it appears on your radio dial all right uh, this looks and like the car radio dial that's right that's channel 54 and during the pandemic, uh, Andy Cohen, who I've never met, um, but I know him by reputation, uh, apparently uh, when he was under lockdown, he was like finding my music on Spotify and Mixcloud and whatnot. And uh, apparently he uh, found out, uh, you know, by, I guess there's some, there's some app that will tell you how many hours you've listened to such and such a person or such and such an artist. And so I apparently was the most, <laughs> was the most listened to artist. So when he launched his own channel, which is called the Kiki Lounge on channel 312, uh, his assistant uh, contacted me up in Maine and said, uh, we'd like you to have a, a weekly show. So I do Wednesday, uh, excuse me, Thursdays uh, on channel 312. And the nice thing about that is it's a three hour block. So instead of just being an hour show when you just kind of just kind of put your toe in the water, uh, this is a nice, a nice full set to to really kind of you know, let the DJ express himself more fully. Nice. Nice. Yeah. And thanks to the advent of digital recording, you do not need a room full of sound equipment to That's do right. it. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it truly is. I mean, I've actually learned how to do digital editing myself and it kind mm -hmm. of boggles the mind. And, and for those of you that aren't old, like me, we used to have to edit with an editing block, a razor blade and piece of old. tape. And you would have, you would have pieces of tape everywhere to try to keep track. Of them. Yes. <laughs> right. 
Uh, it's a wonderful thing. And uh, the great thing is I still mix uh, intuitively and by, you know, just by feeling uh, when I'm doing, Good. when I'm doing these sets and yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, I'm using basically my roots. I'm relying on my roots as a, as a club DJ uh, putting these shows together. So it's a, uh, it's still a great experience to, to, you know, to forge a set and, uh, and finish it up and polish it off and, uh, and get it ready to air. Well, I think that your foundation roots are guiding you well because it is about the feeling. It is about the musical journey. I mean, I, I, I know I keep saying the same thing over again, but it really is so much in part without the appropriate musical journey. You don't really get the appropriate response from the crowd that you were describing, which really is the heartbeat. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And without that communication between the two, if you have somebody who's just up there playing music that they want to hear and they're ignoring the crowd, you're not going to get that heartbeat either. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And, 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 and to be able to take those skills, that skill set, and then transcend it to essentially an empty room, you're making up for broadcast for the radio. How do you know you you get no feedback. It's like the same thing that I hear from many of my performing, uh, my live events friends, you know, the artists get no feedback. The artists are going bonkers because they're playing to themselves. They right. need the audience and the audience needs the artist. Oh, yeah, it's very symbiotic. Absolutely. Yes. And uh, while we're on the subject of uh, of disco, which I guess this is all about, uh, more or less. I am absolutely over the moon. And I want to I want to drop this in as some promotion uh, next year in the spring. Uh, I'm going to be the DJ on board. It's called the Ultimate Disco Cruise. And uh, if you have any interest in a, a cruise that is absolutely immersed in disco uh, from beginning to end with original artists and uh, acts uh, like Casey and the Sunshine Band and, and the Spinners and uh, the Stylistics and uh, A Taste of Honey and Thelma Houston. And the list goes on. I think there are about 40 acts, but it's called Ultimate Disco Cruise.com. And uh, I would love to see you on board. Uh, it's it's going to be it's going to be incredible. I, I cannot wait to do it. This is going to be one of those like once in a lifetime uh, gigs that I just need to do. I've got your banner running along the bottom so people can find you on social media, on Facebook and Instagram. Right. And Thank I'm you. sure you'll be posting links up on oh, your yeah, social yeah. media. So if people yeah. want to get more information on this incredible disco cruise that's upcoming, mm-hmm. please do visit Robbie. Uh, On his social media, I will also have some links up on our page, on our website when we post this, um, and uh, certainly linking into Robbie's sites. And we can put a link up to the Disco Cruise as well, if you like, Robbie. Thank you. That will be fantastic. Yeah, I I think this is one not to miss. And this is not just a shameless self-promotion, which it is, but also (laughs) this is is sincere uh, that I think this is going to be one for the record books for sure. Well, you know, it's it's really nice to see how the world has embraced the music and the culture that we grew up with that we love so much. And yeah. and it was fun. It's been fun. And I look forward to many more of these events as time goes on. Um, but it's been fun to do some things with you at Sirius. Here's a cool picture of a down a town hall we did a couple of years ago right there um, we are i moderated and we had uh robbie 
and Bobby Vitoriti, uh, who's most known for his West Coast Trocadero transfer uh, DJ, and Sharon White, and God rest his soul, uh, recently departed Tony Smith. And Tony Smith, I'm very glad that they do, still do keep his show going, and what a wonderful, wonderful artist. You know, it, it hurts when people that essentially you've grown up with right, in the biz, yeah. um, you know. We've lost too many, of course. Uh, we have, yeah. we have indeed, indeed, indeed. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you as my guest on this show today. Absolutely you, a delight. Um, we know where we can find you. We've yes. got my runner running. You can certainly find all of the links on our website. Here's Robbie's runner again. You can find, <laughs> excuse me, all of the links on his social media places and also RobbieLeslie.com. Right, correct. Your website still, yes, sir. And we certainly hope to have you back again as another guest as we expound on various other aspects of how we define a heartbeat. But, you know, you really did hit the nail on the head. And I know that a lot of this idea came from conversations we had a couple of years ago. Absolutely. And, sure. and it, it, it really is just so much more encompassing than just the music for sure or without, just without the place doubt. there's so many different components and so many different aspects and and what i'm trying to show in this podcast is how many different ways you can achieve that same goal right of having magic of having the perfection of a pure heartbeat mm -hmm. um and in many genres i believe it exists in every genre sure um, it is wonderful to see that the world has embraced the music that we love and yes. we continue to put it forward and please rock on, keep making that music, keep <laughs> making those happy sounds. You bet. I thank you very much, Robbie. Thank you, Marsha. It's been great. It's been pleasure. wonderful. We look thank forward you. to the next time, my friend. Bye now, honey. For now, we say bye-bye from Heartbeat of the Dance Floor. Bye now.